Good morning, Rip. How are you? All right, so this fall, I don't know about you guys, but for the first time, like since 2019, everything for me is starting to feel normal. Is that, is that happening for you at all? Like, and I'm scared to even use the word normal um, because it doesn't mean the same, right? <laughs> Things are not like the same as they were in 2019. They're definitely different. The world's changed, but it's like we've changed along with the world, and now the new world that we're in now starts to feel normal. We're kind of in rhythm. And, and again, I'm nervous to say the word normal. I'm nervous to say the word rhythm because I don't necessarily mean good, Right? I don't necessarily mean that all the things that we now accept as normal are wonderful things or healthy things. It's just that we've gotten used to them, right? For instance, pretty much, this is a good thing, pretty much now everybody knows how to use video technology to make calls, right? Um, FaceTime, Zoom, Google. Like three years ago, can you imagine that your grandma would know how to do that? right? But pretty much everybody knows how to do that. Now, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, there's stuff that it's, you know, we're not sure if it's good yet or not, uh, like hybrid work, you know, virtual workplaces, hybrid work. It's one of those things that there's a huge debate as to whether it's a good thing or not, um, but it is here, right? And we've kind of gotten used to it. But there's also some stuff that I think is decidedly not good, uh, decidedly bad that we have grown accustomed to. And one of those things that I've been really wrestling with lately that I think is negative in our culture is the voice and tone of our current cultural moment. And we've kind of grown accustomed to a new normal when it comes to our voice and our tone, especially when we're having discourse around pretty much anything where we disagree with one another. Like, like this, is my, this is my theory, is that we've kind of moved into one of two different directions, and both of them are unhealthy, but both we consider normal now. The first is unrelenting and graceless discourse. And what do I mean by that? Well, that's pretty much where politics lives right now, right? That every position that we hold in politics or societal issues, you could look at issues like uh, sexuality and gender, no matter what your viewpoints are, uh, political issues, no matter what your viewpoints are, our posture in our tone and voice seems to be unrelenting and graceless. And then there's the flip side of that, which is the other extreme, and that is that we've become in some areas cynical and apathetic. And a lot of people that I talk to, um, their voice and their tone when it comes to things like their job is they're no longer excited about their job or even care about their job. Everything now is just kind of apathetic and cynical. And here's the thing that I've been just really wrestling with is that I believe this voice and tone, this, this unrelenting and graceless and apathetic and cynical tone in our culture is not just affecting the world and the culture at large, it's affecting the church in particular. And just like the rest of our lives, we've sort of gotten used to it. For instance, we're no longer surprised, even though we should be, um, when someone who claims to be a follower of Christ goes on a huge rant on social media. We've grown to kind of just expect that that's normal, right? And, and, and or when, when someone uh, on social media says something, for, for everyone to pounce on them, especially if they come from a theological tradition that maybe they disagree with. But it's not just that. I'm watching, and this is the part I'm concerned about the most, is apathy. 
what I'm seeing is a decided movement, both inside and outside of the church, toward apathy with things of faith. It's kind of like our posture toward church or the Bible or Jesus is a measured hesitancy. It's like we're kind of cynical, kind of apathetic. And a lot of people in our culture, it's not that they think Christianity is wrong. It's just they don't think about it at all anymore. It's not even a thing. And for many people, both inside and outside of the church, we are quick to run to anywhere except for the Bible or Jesus to give us counsel on how we should think about ourselves and the world around us. So if all of that is true, which is my thesis, what do we do? And when I say we, I want to define we for a second. I want to talk to we is, is those of us who say that we follow Jesus. For those of us who say we're Christians, we believe it, the good news of the gospel is something that the whole world needs to hear, and we're passionate about that. What do we do? Well, my friend Adam Ramsey, who is a pastor in Australia, um, you know, which means that he has to fight like man-sized spiders every day. Um, I said that in the first service and someone went, oh, like that. But it's absolutely true. I, he actually sent me a video once of a spider like this big on his wall, and he was just throwing a basketball at it from across the room, right? So be glad you live in Lansing is all I'm saying. So, but Adam wrote a book called Truth on Fire, which is a great book, but he had me hooked on his acknowledgments page. Because on his acknowledgments page, he dedicated his book to his church with these words. He says, onward we stumble. And that simple phrase kind of caught my attention and my, um, just, I, I thought about that phrase alone and how it holds the key, I believe, to us engaging our community with the love of Jesus in a voice and a tone that will change everything. In fact, we like that phrase so much, we weaseled it into our new mission statement. <laughs> our mission at RIV is that we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. And so this is what we're going to do. For the next seven weeks, we're going to look at ways that we stumble. We're going to look at um, how to move onward in those things, and we're going to explore creative ways to invite people to join us in that. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to set the stage by looking at this phrase, onward we stumble. And I think every bit of that, every word is important, and I think the best way for us to study that phrase is to do it like Yoda. And I apologize for my Yoda accent, but we're going to say this as a mm, stumble we onward. That's as good as I can get. Yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at it backward because I think it makes sense to me most backwards. So let's look at the word stumble for a second. What does stumble mean? Well, the dictionary tells us that stumble is to trip or momentarily lose one's balance to almost fall. This is actually one of the core beliefs in Christianity. Because one of the core beliefs in Christianity is that we're all messed up and that we all mess up, right? My friend Dave Zoll just wrote a book called uh, Low Anthropology, which I haven't read yet, but I love the idea of low anthropology. Anthropology is the study of what makes us human. 
And the idea of low anthropology is what makes us human is actually we should have a low view of people. Now, that doesn't mean, right, that we say that everybody's awful, like this is negative poo-poo on people. But his, his tagline to his book, I loved, he says, understanding low anthropology is the unlikely key to having a gracious attitude towards yourself and others. When we realize that we're all here, that we all stumble, that we all uh, don't have our stuff together, right? I mean, Romans 3.10, it's a famous verse. There is no one righteous, not even one. That right there is, is an extraordinary leveling of the playing field, isn't it? It's basically saying not one of us is righteous. Not one of us can claim to be, to be, be good. First John 1.8 says, if we say we have no sin... We are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And this is, I think, the deception of our age. Like, we might be willing to admit that we sin a little. We might confess our sins. Probably only the socially acceptable ones. We might be, admit that we have tendencies toward wrong. But the stuff that we love the most, even if the Bible calls it sin... There's no way we would admit to that. The core stuff that we love so much couldn't possibly be wrong, so we become masters of self-deception. And I think what's fascinating is I think Satan's strategy, and I'm not Satan, I, hopefully you know that, um, and he doesn't send me emails or anything, but I think one of his strategies is, is before we become a Christian, he tries to convince us that we are good enough that we don't need Jesus, Right? And then we become Christians, and all of a sudden, he tries to convince us that we're terrible and Jesus doesn't love us anymore, right? He kind of flips the script. And, and so he, 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 there's a deception there. But every single one of us stumbles. Let me give you a case in point. There's a, uh, there's a chapter in the Bible in Hebrews 11 that is called the Hall of Faith because this is a place where a bunch of people are listed who are matriarchs and patriarchs of the faith. These are like heroes of the faith, Right? So let's look at a couple of these heroes of the faith. Just look, look at two of them. First one is a woman named Sarah. And it says in chapter 11, verse 11, By faith, even Sarah herself, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past that age, since she considered that the one who had promised was faithful. And if you know the story of Sarah and Abraham, you know that they were both, old, I think the theological term is old as dirt. Right? And they were beyond the ability to have kids, right? And, and, and she believed, by faith, she believed that God was faithful, that he would fulfill his promise that they were going to have children. And, and that's pretty clear, right? We're like, that's amazing. She's awesome. Well, let's look at her story. If you go back to Genesis, where this story took place, there's, um, it's in Genesis in uh, 18, in Genesis 18, um, some angels show up on the scene to talk to her husband. And along with the angels is what I believe to be the pre-incarnate Jesus like we saw in Daniel. So Jesus and some angels show up to talk to Abraham. They're having a picnic under a tree. And that's where we pick it up in Genesis 18. It says this, where is your wife Sarah? Says one of the angels. They asked him, they're in the tent. Uh, he said, and then it says, the Lord, and by the way, this is one of the reasons I think this is Jesus, is, is this is Jesus that shows up on the scene with the angels, and so this is Jesus talking. Get this. The Lord said, I will certainly come back to you in about a year's time, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and getting on in years. I love that. It's like saying old and old, right? 
Just want to make sure we're all clear. They're old. They're getting on in years. Both of these things are true. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So she laughed to herself. So you got to get the picture, right? The guys are having the, the picnic, the guys, the angels, Jesus, Abraham, under a tree. She's in the tent. She's eavesdropping. She's listening. Jesus says she's going to have a kid. She laughs to herself. So I don't know if this is out loud, if she chuckled under her breath, but she laughs. And then she says why she laughs. She says, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I have delight? I'll let you go translate the whole thing there on your own, right? She's like, I'm old, he's old. Viagra won't be invented for 4,000 years. Like, she's like, this is, this is not happening. And it's, but, but the Lord, this is Jesus, asked Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Now again, we don't know if Sarah laughed out loud or not, but somehow Jesus knows she laughed and says, can I really have a baby when I'm old? Is anything impossible for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will come back to you, and in about a year, she will have a son. Jesus doubles down. He's like, did I stutter? I, I, I know you guys are old as dirt, but did I stutter? And then, this is wonderful, it says, Sarah denied it, I did not laugh, is what she says. This is awesome. Remember, where are they? They're under the tree. Where is she? She's in the tent. Ear up against the tent. She laughs. Jesus says, you laughed. She says, no, I didn't. And I don't know if she's like, no, I didn't. I don't know. But somehow she whispers back out to Jesus, no, I didn't. He says, yes, you did. This is a woman who is heralded for her great faith in God being faithful to his promise to her in Hebrews 11. And she stumbled. What about Moses? We've all heard of Moses, right? Here's a description of Moses in the Hall of Faith. It says, By faith he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's answer, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. That's true. That's Moses. But you know what else is true about Moses? If you read Moses, he spends most of his time arguing with God about why he is uniquely unqualified to do the things that God is calling him to. He spends the first several chapters of the book of Exodus fighting with God, where God's like, I'm sending you. He's like, no, I have a better idea. You should do this. I can't do it. I can't speak. And it's just like constantly, for two chapters, he argues with God. And eventually God says, I'm sending you. And, and basically, my translation of the Hebrew is, is the last thing he says to God is, I don't want to. But then God is, you're going to. So God sends him in, and the children of Israel, the whole time, Moses is just kind of, works his way through this. They, they pass through the Red Sea, out into the desert. In the desert, he complains about the people to God. He disobeys God, so much so that God says, you know what, Moses, you don't even get to go into the promised land. And he, in Hebrews 11, is heralded as a man who great faith, who persevered. What does all this mean? Well, what all this means is that we all stumble. Back in the Roman series, I introduced you guys to my favorite phrase in Latin. If you guys were around during the Roman series last year, it's simul justus et peccator. And I don't know if you remember that phrase, but what that phrase means, Martin Luther used to use this all the time, is it means simultaneously, that's simul, justus, that means just or righteous, which means saint, 
Et means and, it's like et tu brute in Shakespeare. Peccator means sinner. Simultaneously, a sinner and a saint. That's who we are. We are simultaneously sinners and saints. We stumble and we continue to stumble. And don't miss this. That is the normal state of life for a follower of Jesus. But this is how Paul says it in, in Romans chapter 7. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh. He's like, we all know that the law is good, but I'm of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin, for I do not understand what I'm doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Can you identify with Paul? You ever get to that point where you're stumbling and then you're like, why am I doing this? What am I doing? Almost exactly 24 hours ago, I was sitting in a pew in Progressive Baptist Church on the south side of Chicago um, at a conference. And I was sitting next to this old guy in his 70s or 80s. Um, by the way, he was awesome. Tracksuit. And he was wearing a dress shirt under the tracksuit. Cane, hat, awesome guy. So got to know him. His name is Eddie. Eddie told me that he got saved in 1974. And the thing that makes Eddie sad and sometimes mad is that since 1974 when he became a Christian, he has never figured out how to be a good Christian. He's like, I look at my life and I ask myself, what am I doing? But here's the beautiful thing. Asking that question says a lot about you. Because when you place your faith in Jesus, when he saves you, when you've been justified by him, he begins to change the desires inside of your heart. You begin to say, why am I living the kind of life I, I, I don't want to live? This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 7. We, we turn our hearts to Jesus. He, we desire new things. We don't want to sin, even though we kind of want to sin. We want to obey God, even though we kind of don't want to obey God. We want to please him, even though we kind of don't want to please him. And this is the battle of our lives. And so we ask ourselves, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why do I end up doing what I hate? Because we stumble. And I think it's so easy to sometimes think that that struggle will never go away. I wish you could talk to Eddie like I did yesterday. That struggle doesn't go away until glory. We're always going to have to work on this. But hear me and hear the Apostle Paul. This is the normal life of a follower of Jesus. You're not weird. You're not uniquely messed up if you stumble. You are normal. So what do we do? Is there any good news? Listen to what Paul says. He continues and says, what a wretched man I am. <laughs> He's like, who will rescue me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I am myself observing the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. He's like, I know I'm going to battle this all the way till the end. Thanks be to God that this is up to Jesus and not up to me. He understands that he's going to have this battle with sin, what he calls the body of death. And in one sense, it's over. Jesus on the cross, when he lived his sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven. He conquered sin. He did that for us already. And as Paul is writing these words, he is, what he's doing is he's subtly modeling something that it's often easy to miss. 
Paul could have kept all of this to himself. He could have been like, I am not being a very good Christian all the time. (laughs) I don't know why I do what I hate. But he got out his pen and he wrote a letter to the Romans and then to you to say, this is my life experience. I stumble. So what is he doing? I believe he's showing us that we don't do this alone. We stumble. Make sure you hear this today. You don't stumble alone. I don't stumble alone. That's the beauty of the church. We should not expect this place to be a place where people have got all their crap together. We shouldn't have to pretend when we don't. This world may pounce on people who confess their sin, may pounce on people who are making faltering steps toward Jesus. We don't. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians that I absolutely love where it says this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Now, the word affliction there literally means to be squeezed. I love that. So when pressure comes into your life, pressure comes into your life, and you find yourself afflicted, and that could be anything. I don't think he's just talking about persecution here. It could be stumbling. It could be falling into sin. It could be relational difficulty. Whatever's going on in your life that is afflicting you, when you stumble, he says, remember this. God gives you what? This passage said it. Comfort. And that comfort comes from who? He says, the father of mercies. And what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So when you stumble, whether it's your fault or somebody else's fault, you don't get what you deserve. Instead, you get comfort. The Father of mercies doesn't give you judgment. He, doesn't, he, he gives you mercy. And there's no promise here that these afflictions are going to go away this side of eternity. It's just he, we're going to get comfort. And the beautiful thing is the way he gives us this comfort is us. Did you catch that? The method that God uses to comfort his people is people who have been comforted by him. And how do you suppose those people are comforted by him? By people. As we comfort people in the name of Jesus, they comfort people in the name of Jesus who comfort people in the name of Jesus. We do this together. You know, every once in a while, Jesus throws down a statement that uh, even the world likes in fact, I think that this is the most popular verse in the Bible. It used to be John 3.16, now it's uh, Matthew 7.1, where he says, do not judge so that you won't be judged, right? We know this verse so much, we quote it in the King James. Judge not lest ye be judged. We do it in King James because it's more sanctimonious, right? We love that verse, but listen to the whole thing. Judge not so that you won't be judged, for you'll be judged by the same standard by which you judge others, and you'll be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eyes, but you don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your eye, you hypocrite. First take the beam of wood out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. This is a wonderful passage, but don't miss the obvious. Why would you look at somebody and judge something in them. Like you see a splinter in their eye, right? Why would you judge that? Because they deserve judgment. 
What he's saying is, right, you see sin in somebody or probably sin that they've committed against you. That's what you see, right? And so you see it and you're ready to call it out. They lied to you. They cheated. They bullied. They've done something like that to you. And so you reach back into your tool of judgments and you just go after them, right? Some of us are like the, in your face, how dare you do that to me? How dare you sin like that kind of person? Some of us have the quiet internal smugness that judges people without saying a single word. But Jesus is basically saying, yo, first of all, is that how you want to be treated? And second of all, Jesus is saying, by the way, you have something in your eye. There's a quirk of human nature you may or may not have noticed. We tend to judge other people the harshest in the areas where we are the weakest. Let me say that again. We tend to judge people the harshest in the areas we are the weakest. Whether it's relational conflict, sins that we're trapped in, sins that have been committed against us, we tend to reserve our most severe judgments to the places where we are guilty or hurt. Think about this, right? Imagine you have a neighbor who keeps his mower deck lower than yours, right? And it's fine. He can mow his lawn as low as he wants. But sometimes he kind of mows around a tree in your backyard and gets a little bit of your yard. But now you got the circle around the tree that's lower than you would do it. Why does your blood, not, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm just confessing my own sin. But why does you, it's not me, why, do, why does your blood boil? Is it about you or is it about him? Is he really trying to annex your backyard like Russia? annexing, you know, Ukraine? No. It betrays more about us in our reaction toward others than it does about them. Dave Zoll, who I mentioned, uh, wrote that low anthropology book, also wrote a great book called uh, Seculosity. I want to read a quote from his book. He says, nothing allows us to excuse ruthlessness easier than when we've painted our neighbor as an adversary to all that is true and holy. Not just the neighbor with the mower deck, but the neighbor with the other belief system than you. The neighbor that values something differently than you do. We paint them as an adversary to all that is true and holy. And the tighter the in-group, the larger the out-group. Depending on the content of the righteousness in question, this drive can spark our most dehumanizing judgments of other people and inspire us, sometimes unconsciously, to conceive of the world in terms of us versus them. Does that speak to our cultural moment right now? But here's the thing about Jesus. He's the only one that's other. The rest of us stumble. He is perfect. We sin. He is righteous. We are unrighteous. It should be Jesus versus us, but it's not. Jesus steps into humanity. He becomes like us. He be, actually becomes our sin on the cross, and he gives us his righteousness, and he doesn't just level the playing field between us. He levels the playing field between us and him. And so now... We, together, are his body, and we stumble together. Let's talk about that word, onward. Think about the example of the Apostle Paul. 
If you've read your Bible, you know the Apostle Paul. He has street cred. He has credentials. He's everything. In Philippians 3, he actually lays out all of his credentials. He just lays it all out there. says, this is me. This is me. This is everything I've ever achieved. And then in verse 7, he says this. He says, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Now, those of us who have been around Jesus for a long time, we've heard this passage a lot, but I think we've heard it so much it's lost its thunder. So I want to try to put this into a picture for you. Imagine in front of you, you have a pot right? I want you to throw stuff on this pile. Everything that you've ever achieved, right? Every good decision that you have ever made, every time you've been generous, any time you've been loving. And now, what about every time something good happened to you? When you got a scholarship, when someone treated you kindly and you didn't deserve it, Put all of that in a pile in front of you. Imagine that's like a billion dollars, right, of value. Paul says, I look at that pile, and it's worthless to me compared to what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's why in my, our mission statement, we say we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus, because there's nothing better than knowing Jesus. When you know Jesus, you enjoy Jesus. When you know and enjoy Jesus, you'll look at that billion-dollar pile and you'll say, that's worth nothing. In fact, Paul went so far as to say it's not just worth nothing. He says it is officially dung. We all know what that word is, right? Let me just say this for a second. The translators of, translators of your Bible were careful. They walked a fine line here. They didn't want to offend your sensibilities. I'll, I'll prove it to you. Dr. Daniel Wallace is a Greek scholar and professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for like decades and decades and decades. This is what he said about that word. He said the term dung conveys both revulsion and worthlessness in this context. He's talking about the original Greek language. He says, in Hellenistic Greek, it seems to stand somewhere between crap and... The range of this word is between crap and... Now, now he goes on to say this... Um, However, due to English sensibilities and considering the readership, Christians, a softer term such as dung is most appropriate. I respectfully disagree with Daniel Wallace because it is precisely the worthlessness of this word. It is precisely the revulsion of this word. It's precisely the fact that I don't even want to say the word. I actually talked to tons of people this week. Should I say the word? Crap and should I say it? The fact that it, I can't even get myself to say it, although I was close. That is what he is communicating. He's like, I pile everything in front of me, everything good that has ever happened to me, everything good I have ever done, and I look at it, and in comparison to knowing Jesus, it is crap. Imagine you've got that pile, a billion dollars in front of you. You're like, I've worked, I've worked, I've worked for this. I've been blessed, I've been blessed, I've been blessed for this, and you just look at your pile. And then Jesus comes along, and he's like, that's nothing. I'm going to pile so many riches on top of this that you can't even count it. But you've got to consider this nothing. You would. I guarantee you would. 
Like if I saw that pile and Jesus offered me the pile, I would just run and stumble toward Jesus, tripping over myself, making mistakes, sinning, falling, getting up again, doing it over and over and over, knowing that nothing matters except for Jesus. Listen to how Paul continues. Verse 12 and 14. He says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make everything, uh, make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Jesus. Oh, what a great phrase. Jesus has got me, so I'm going after Jesus. Jesus has hold me, so I'm running to Jesus. He's like, and, and you kind of get this sense. He's like, he's like, I'm tripping and falling over myself, running after Jesus. He says, brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul says, I stumble onward toward the finish line where Jesus is standing. In 1993... One of my favorite uh, Christian bands, so I know most of you were not born then, or a lot of you weren't. In 1993, this Christian band, by a guy by the name of Steve Taylor, wrote a song called Finish Line. I loved that song. It was a great song. Um, and I hadn't heard it in a really, really long time until a couple months ago. And a couple months ago, I was really in a rough space, personally. And the rough space I was in is I was struggling with some deeply ungodly attitudes towards some people. And I knew they were wrong. And I just kept saying to myself, why can't I get this fixed? Why can't I treat people better? And then Spotify popped up Steve Taylor's song, Finish Line in My Car, which I believe the algorithm is just powered by the Holy Spirit. And I, I'll post it on socials later on today or something like that if I decide to. But I just want to read a few of the lyrics to this song to you. He starts out by saying, Once upon an average morn, an average boy was born for the second time. And then he tells the story of someone giving their life to Jesus. And they make a commitment. I am never going back to sin. <laughs> I am never going to follow those idols again in my life. And then he says, the heart is weak. The will is gone. And every strong conviction comes tumbling down. Have you felt that? You're passionately following after Jesus. And then the heart is weak. The will is gone. Your convictions, you're like, Ugh. In fact, he goes on to say, we're locked in a washroom turning old tricks. <laughs> Deaf and joyless and full of it. And this is the normal Christian experience. I've been reading the old classic book by John Bunyan recently called Pilgrim's Progress. And, and, and Jesus is like, go down the narrow way. And he just keeps getting sidetracked by everything. <laughs> By sin and by law and by wisdom and by civility. And he just, he just, and, and this is the normal Christian experience. But at the end of Steve Taylor's song, he has this guy throw his arms up in the air. And it says this, every idol like dust, a word scattered them all. And I rose to my feet when you scaled that last wall. And I gasped as I saw you fall in his arms at the finish line. The normal life of a follower of Jesus 
is we stumble onward. And one day, none of this will matter. All that will matter is Jesus. At the finish line with his arms stretched out, when he will scatter every idol and one word will wipe every tear and he will present you to himself as spotless and perfect without any wrinkle or any other blemish. So what I want to do today is I just want to close by praying a few verses of Jude over you. Would you guys stand? And I'm going to read more than is on the screen because I want to. (laughs) Jude says, but you, dear friends, as you build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy with others, but with fear. Hating even the garment defiled by flesh. And now, to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen.